There is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Now there's a group of workers out in Mississauga, Ontario that are doing something quite remarkable. I first heard about them in a tweet from the Najwan Support Network. Hopefully you'll remember them. They were previous guests here on Blueprints of Disruption. We had them on for the episode called Stolen Wages. They're a group out in Peel who organize around non-unionized workers, very precarious workers. Go back and listen to that episode to really get a full picture of what they're up against. They tweeted about these folks, and then I read a great article in Spring Magazine. It's written by Krishna Saravanamutu, and I'm going to, of course, link it in the show notes here. So what you need to know is these workers, they're going into their third week of protests to get thousands of dollars back in stolen wages from their boss. So there's almost 50 workers from the industrial bakery Live Freely Foods, and they're all owed back wages. Now we're talking about about 50 workers from the industrial bakery Live Freely Foods are owed back wages ranging from about $2,500 to $13,000 each. These pieces of shit bosses were already paying these workers under the minimum wage. They were getting $14 an hour, many of them working 12-hour shifts to bring baked goods, to bring the boss's product to these huge grocery chains. So even before this dispute that they're having now, these workers did not get overtime. They did not get vacation pay or holiday pay. So we're talking about the kind of bosses that just prey off the most vulnerable workers and the precarious position some of these folks find themselves in. We're finding out a lot of them are international students. We've talked about their precarious position here on the show before, they pay quite a lot to go to Canadian universities and then often have to find precarious labor in order to make ends meet. Employers know this, and so they take advantage of it. I know some folks are out there going, you know, who is going to work for under the minimum wage? Who doesn't know their rights? And the answer is a lot of people, from language barriers to just the insurmountable task of sometimes having to take an employer on and and risking everything you've put into getting to Canada in the first place. This creates the conditions in which we know bosses routinely steal wages from workers or otherwise take complete advantage of them. So I guess this company was in financial trouble or whatever. They just stopped paying the workers. They eventually, they eventually declared bankruptcy, but not before accruing tens of thousands of dollars in back wages to these workers. Some of them were given partial pay. Some of them were given no pay, but promises that once the company was doing better, that they would be reimbursed. And again, we got to keep in mind 
the situation a lot of these workers are already in without stirring the pot at work. But $13,000, this is a lot of money to be owed by an employer. How does one even continue to pay rent? You know, you are really put up against the wall in these circumstances. So it's no wonder we see these workers fighting back, but we still, you need to acknowledge the courage that takes and the organizing know-how that it takes because you're not in a union. There's no structure to this. This is done by folks who simply get together in a collective, have a common grievance, and decided to do something about it. And so even though Krishna points out in the article he's written that the Employment Standards Act says that directors of a company are personally liable for these wages, even if the business goes bust, the reality is they still have to fight. And that's not just because it's some unknown bakery or it's just a handful of workers. We just have to look back to 2016. Nortel workers, when that company went bankrupt, were owed millions. Again, Nortel got into financial difficulty. The way the laws were structured, they just stopped paying severance packages. They stopped paying the deferred wages that had been promised to retirees. And medical and disability benefits were withheld from a lot of employees. Now, eventually, they did have their day in court, and to some, it was declared a victory after seven years. But still, they didn't get the full amount that they were promised as workers. Right? Their pension wasn't what they had been promised while they were working. That case garnered a lot of attention in the Canadian media media. It was a lot of workers. It was a high-profile company. And the result was it became part of the Liberal Party's refrain that they would do something about it, that they would protect worker pensions. And the NDP has also tabled legislation to the same. So in April 2023, the Pension Protection Act became law, and it does a little bit to partially secure pensions for workers when the company that they work for goes out of business, declares bankruptcy. But we need to keep in mind that less than 30% of people in Canada even have a private sector pension plan. And even with the advancements that have been made, this still allows workers to be seriously shortchanged. They're having to settle for lesser amounts in pension payments and disability coverage, and this impacts them for the rest of their lives. All of this is put on the workers. And what is really upsetting to me is quite often when we see the exorbitant amounts CEOs are paid, directors are paid, even high-level managers are paid, especially in relation to the workers on the ground, the workers doing the actual work. A lot of the justification behind that is that they take on the risk. They hold a lot on their shoulders. There's a lot for them at risk financially should the business not do well. So part of carrying that burden is being so heavily compensated that they sometimes make oh, tenfold what your average worker is making. But the reality is that's not true. They aren't held liable. Even in law, when they are, the books are stacked against workers. Going through court cases, picketing outside an employer while you need another job now. These folks have daily pickets there in the afternoon. If you'd like to join them, that's there at 6,310-6310 Kestrel Road in Mississauga. So these folks are holding picket lines. They are doing what you need to do to organize 
the folks around them, all while probably needing employment on top of that. Even, as I mentioned, Nortel taking seven years to go through the courts, that time costs money and energy that most folks don't have to go up against those odds. Another reason the law is essentially useless in these matters is because the province who's responsible for upholding it is notorious for not taking action against employers. And between austerity and this general hatred of workers that conservatives have, it means there's fewer and fewer resources dedicated to enforcing these labor laws, even something as egregious as stolen wages. So what workers are left to do is what you're seeing these workers out in in the bakery in Mississauga do, and what you're seeing folks like the Najawan Support Network do is organize non-unionized workers. And the tactics that they use, although they might resemble a strike and a picket line and things we associate with a union, they also can work outside the confines that unions sometimes have set for them, sometimes arbitrarily set. And we'll talk about that in a minute. These folks are, again, if you go back to the episode called Stolen Wages, they get into exactly why they escalate the way that they do. But it's essentially a really intense pressure put directly on the bosses, picket lines outside, kind of name and shame campaigns, anything to raise press coverage, but also that kind of personal accountability to the bosses that own wages. And this has proven to be somewhat effective. These workers, even though not unionized, a small handful of workers, they've managed to win back $50,000 through this intense, unrelenting pressure that they've put on. This isn't all that they're owed, and so the strike will continue. They will fight to win, and I hope folks can just kind of be inspired by the actions that we see happening around us by unionized workers, but also non-unionized workers. I talked about these arbitrary limits that sometimes unions and their leadership work within, and nothing, I think, demonstrates that more than what's going on with Ontario educators right now. Okay, so the OSSTF, that is the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, so high school educators, they presented a deal recently to their members, a deal that they had struck with the province of Ontario. I don't know if the audience needs reminding just how hostile to workers, particularly educators, that this government Ontario has been, and this Minister of Education has been. We all remember CUPE's job action and the use of the notwithstanding clause that was used last year. If you don't, go back to the almost a general strike episode. But here we are, uh, about a year later, and very early on in the negotiation season, the OSSTF is already capitulating to the province. They've asked their members to vote on a deal that would have them continue negotiations until the end of October, at which point, if a deal hadn't been made, they would be locked into binding arbitration. This would essentially take away the teacher's right to strike. Although they can issue maybe press statements back and forth, they won't be able to use strikes and the employer won't be able to use a lockout. However, workers will not be able to get to vote on that deal. So for folks who don't know, binding arbitration is when typically things are at an impasse. It's a tool of last resort, especially for workers, because what happens is a third party comes in, an arbitrator hears both sides, looks at labor trends, gathers whatever information they have to, and then they 
that single person makes a seemingly unbiased decision and the workers will be held to it. Now, it's important to note that teachers in Ontario are a mix of different unions. And even within these unions, obviously, they have different bargaining units. But what we saw last year when QP was up against the wall and they had a major labor dispute on hand, what they needed was solidarity from their fellow unions. And they got it from OPSU and to a level in the end, rumor has it, you know, a general strike was brewing and they did have the cooperation of other teachers unions. The one thing that really tipped the scales during that dispute was when OPSU stood in solidarity and community groups stood in solidarity and it became a collective action. It wasn't just that one QP local going up against the province. It was the entire population pushing back. But particularly, they had some solidarity from within their industry. The whole point of having separate bargaining unions as well, it sometimes divides workers. And with the OSSTF suggesting this deal to members, they're basically telling the other teacher unions they're on their own. Because both the Elementary Teachers Federation, so ETFO, EDFO, and OECTA, which is the Catholic Teachers of Ontario, they are going to have a strike vote of their own in the fall. This weakens their position from the get-go. Even though OSSTF workers right now are voting on this deal, they have until I think September 27th to vote yes or no. Simply bringing this to their members has weakened the position of other teachers unions. Their bargaining units will already be up against the precedent of OSSTF presenting their members binding arbitration as something valid, as the only way forward. And this is a very dangerous message. And it's actually really confusing to see OSSTF do this, considering what we experienced last year and knowing that their fellow educators are going into the same positions. So despite being shown so much evidence as to what that kind of cross-union solidarity can accomplish, they're taking that power away so early. And their president, Karen Littlewood, is openly telling members to vote yes to this. The worst part, she's desperate to convince members this is the best they can do. She is working against all of that mentality that we've been building, building towards that tells workers that when they resist, when they withhold their labor, they can get what they need. They can get what they deserve, what students deserve in this case as well. She's, she tells members that this is also the only remedy, I'm using her words now, to recoup the lost wages from Bill 124. A reminder, Bill 124 was that unconstitutional bill passed by Doug Ford that froze public sector wages. There's a lot of workers out there that are essentially out wages because of that legislation. And she's telling her workers this is the only way to fight back against that. That's pathetic. And now this isn't the first time she's been called out for lacking any revolutionary vision whatsoever. And back to the labor disruption that we're talking about last year with QP, the only time she showed any solidarity during that was in the final press conference. OSSTF members kept reporting to work. It was work as usual. The only thing that she did was send a memo out to her members asking them not to be scabs, to not actually do the work of CUPE members in the schools that they were working in. 
These were schools without caretakers, maintenance workers, and other really key personnel, essential personnel. And in reality, they created somewhat unsafe conditions for OSSTF members and students to be working in. It wouldn't have been so far-fetched to set the tone that OSSTF members had a lot more within their power than simply, you know, walking into binding arbitration. But by and large... OSSTF and and their president, Karen Littlewood, were essentially silent during that fight against Ford. Now, the good news is not everyone agrees with what she's done. And the Toronto local bargaining unit has sent a message to its members that it opposes the deal. It will not recommend this to its members. And this follows a large trend of workers rejecting the offers being sent to them. Now, the bargaining unit doesn't necessarily fully agree with the deal, but they might be acting pragmatically and they think that's the best they can get. So they're passing it on. Let the workers decide. Let them be justified in rejecting the offer because it had been voted down. And this is normal. This is how it's structured. This is how it's supposed to be. It just seems there are just a lot more locals pushing back and asking for better deals. So it's still up in the air. Their members are voting. You'll see it play out on social media, the arguments back and forth. But really, this is a huge capitulation to preemptively tie yourself to arbitration. Members will have no idea at this point what are the key sticking points, what they are likely to lose, what the government is not moving on. All of these demands aren't going to be perfectly clear to the workers that are right now asking to vote on the deal that's before them. One of the best lines out of the Toronto local statement was that they were concerned that this might have a serious impact on solidarity, on our capacity to organize our members, and on building collective actions going forward. There's no arguing with that. And I'm appalled that Karen Littlewood is actually convinced that this is the best that she can do with her members. This is also why it's so important for union members to elect revolutionaries. We do this in politics. Sometimes we water down our leaders because of what we think is palatable at the time. There are other reasons that play into it, but we need to be more bold when we choose who's going to speak on our behalf. Because although the president of this union doesn't call all the shots, making statements like this, that that workers have only backroom deals and binding arbitration as tools to get what they deserve is so detrimental to the entire movement. So I hope folks at the OSSTF, at Ontario High School teachers and educators, will vote no before September 27th, and they will replace that leadership with somebody who understands the power of unions. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.